but there's a lot that has to happen to make this happen on Wednesday nights. And so uh, you know who you are, but thanks to uh, those that put out the handouts and have those ready to go on Wednesday nights, to those that hand out uh, and put up the chairs, to the cleanup crew, to the name tag folks, uh, to the prayer team that prays before every RUF, uh, and Cal and the uh, worship team, the music team, it takes a lot of, of work to do all of this and to prepare and to practice and to set up the equipment and to take it down. And so I know you don't want the, uh, necessarily to be called out, but I need to because I'm very thankful for all the hard work that people have done to make RUF happen uh, week in and week out. Uh, and so uh, thank you. And then seniors, uh, you know I love you, and you know that I'm going to miss you, and I'm very thankful um, that you've spent the last four years with us. You mean a lot to our family. Thanks for the ways that you've served, uh, and we're going to miss you and know um, that you can always come back. You're welcome here uh, anytime. So uh, we've been studying the Gospel of Mark this semester, and uh, We've been looking at this question of who is Jesus. And one of the things that we've learned this semester is that there are really only two rational responses or intellectually uh, uh, responses that have any intellectual integrity uh, when it comes to dealing with Jesus. And that is, and if you've been coming this semester, you've heard me say this, but you either worship Jesus or you hate Jesus. That's really what we see in the Bible. And C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, Jesus is either of utmost importance in your life or he's of no importance. But one thing Jesus cannot be is of some importance. That is, if you've actually read the Gospels and if you've been coming, you've been learning a little bit about the claims that Jesus makes. Why in the world would C.S. Lewis say a thing like that? Well, Lewis says this because no one, no other religious leader makes the claims that Jesus makes. He's unlike anyone else in history. Because he came into the world and he said, I am God. I'm God in the flesh. I'm the Messiah. I am the anointed one. I am the one to whom all human history has been waiting on and pointing to. I am the Christ. And so because of that, that means that you can't write Jesus off. Whatever you think about, you've, about Christianity, you've got to deal with Jesus and have intellectual integrity because no one makes the claims that he does, so you can't shrug him off. And when you look through the Gospels, and one of the things we've seen again this semester is no one just simply likes Jesus. They either love him and worship him, or they hate him and want to kill him. Those are the only two responses to his claims. And tonight we come, and it's interesting, we're going to close the series by seeing Mark put before us two illustrations or two pictures of people uh, who, one who loves Jesus, and the other who hates him and betrays him. Before we look at our passage, let me pray and ask God to come and help us through his spirit. Father, we pause tonight to say thank you for the wonderful things that you've done. You're uh, good and your faithfulness 
uh, endures for generations. Your um, enduring love has been very real to us this semester. And so we thank you for all the ways that you've worked um, in our community, corporately, but also in the ways that you've worked in individual hearts and lives. We do pray for our seniors tonight. We thank you for their commitment and their service to your kingdom and specifically uh, to the ways they've used their gifts to serve the ministry of RUF. And I pray for them. Those that maybe are still looking for jobs, I pray that you would provide. Those that are still looking for things like housing and details to fall into place, we pray that you would provide. We pray for uh, all the seniors as they go out, even if they're staying here and they're going to be surrounded by new faces, I pray that you would give them good, deep, and rich community. Provide with them people who would love them and uh, who will seek to know them. Um, Father, as we give you thanksgiving, we're also very mindful tonight of uh, lots of heartache and pain. I'm reminded of the Tristan Bird family tonight, and we pray for them and their family, and I pray that you would be near to them. Lord, you are also a God uh, who weeps with those who weep and enters into our pain, and you're very near in brokenness and heartache. And would they feel your presence in a very real and tangible way. Father, be with the preaching of your word. Come through your spirit and apply this to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, You can see an outline in the text printed before you, but I also want to encourage you tonight, if you have a Bible, um, open it up because we're going to be referring to a couple of different uh, verses, even verses that we did not read, so uh, we might refer to some of the context and it might be helpful, or you can also look on your phone as well. But if you look at verse 1, Mark tells us that the religious establishment had wanted to kill Jesus for some time. And at this point in the gospel story, uh, they can hardly contain themselves. They want to get their hands on Jesus. The tension is at an all-time high. The heat is turned all the way up. But look at verse 2. It says that the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they had to bide their time because there was this thing going on in the community called Passover. And basically, that meant that lots and lots of people were going to be in town for the Passover. And they were afraid, and they knew that if they arrested Jesus, that it would not be good. That chaos would erupt, and riots would probably start as a result of arresting Jesus. And then, if you look, notice, it almost at this point, Mark introduces this story of Jesus and the woman that anoints him with this expensive ointment. And I don't know about you, but as you're reading, it seems like out of place, doesn't it? It seems like a pause or a break in the narrative. But remember, this semester, Mark does a lot of things by contrast in order to make a point. And that's exactly what he does in this passage. He contrasts the hatred of the religious leaders... And the betrayal of Judas, and right smack in the middle, we have the devotion of this woman. And you see what Mark is doing. He's saying that Jesus, in the life of Jesus, pushes you in two directions. All-out devotion 
or betrayal. This woman who we learn in John chapter 12, another account of this, we know is Mary, the sister of Martha. If you've read the book of John, you've heard of Mary and Martha. They were really close to Jesus. They were good friends of Jesus. This is Mary in this story if you look at the gospel of John chapter 12. And so this woman is an illustration of devotion. And Judas shows, and Mark shows us, is a picture and an illustration of betrayal. And so when confronted with the claims of Jesus, there are only two possibilities open to the human heart. Deep, warm, committed, heartfelt love for him, or a sinister plot to overthrow him and rebel against him. Mark shows us both. And they both deserve our attention tonight in this passage. So those are the points tonight. The devotion of the woman, and secondly, the betrayal of Judas. If you look at how the story begins, it tells us that Jesus is in Bethany and he's eating dinner at this house of a man by the name of Simon the leper, verse 3. I don't know about you, but that's interesting. I mean, he could have just said, I'm eating at Simon's house. But he makes a point to say, Mark makes a point to say Simon the leper. And most likely, Mark is uh, telling us about a person, commentators think that Simon the leper is someone who was healed in Jesus' ministry of leprosy, of course, at some point uh, in time. But I also think Mark is doing something uh, something else here. He is reminding us, once again, of the kind of people that Jesus hung out with. The lepers, the prostitutes, the down and outers, the outcasts, the social uh, outcasts, those who were rejected by the world. That's who Jesus hung out with. That's who he moved towards. He didn't move towards the social elites. And remember, uh, lepers, when we think about Simon the leper, he was considered unclean at one time before he was healed. He was isolated from his community. Even his own family, and any time anyone got near to him, he had to scream out, unclean, unclean, away from me. That's who Jesus is hanging out with. He's reclining at the table of this social outcast. I think that's worth noting. And as he's reclining there, and it's a dinner party, and so lots of people there, the disciples are obviously there, but other people in the community are there as well. And then the most remarkable thing happens. This woman comes in with this very expensive jar of perfume or ointment or this flask, and it's most likely a a family heirloom. Uh, In other words, this is her retirement. This is her 401k. And she comes in and breaks open this flask and she pours it, notice, this is going to be important later, not on Jesus' feet, but she pours it. We see that in other anointings in the Bible. But she pours it on Jesus' head. And when the passage says here that it's very costly, it's not joking. The passage tells us that the jar was worth 300 denarii. That was a year or year's wages in that day and time. So translate that to today. Let's say the average wage, I don't know, is 35,000 a year if we did a true average. 
This woman just came in and broke a $35,000 jar and poured it on Jesus and laid it at his feet. I love what one writer says, Sinclair Ferguson. He says, in a moment of quiet commitment, she had resolved that Jesus should receive her most precious possession. In gratitude for the past, she poured out her future and her security on Jesus. Then look at verse 6 and 7. We see that Jesus praises her for her actions because she has placed him above everything else. Look at what he says. She has done a beautiful thing. The poor you will always have with you. You can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. Now let's think about that. That's a little odd. Because you could read that and say, well, does Jesus say he doesn't care about the poor? No. Uh, let me ex- try to explain. That's not what Jesus is saying here. How do we know? Because remember, Bible study principle, Scripture interprets Scripture. We see all over the place in the Gospels that Jesus cares deeply about the poor and moves towards them. So that's not what it's saying. Jesus is not saying he doesn't care or don't care about the poor. Jesus is saying this, that the richness that his death in a few short days would bring to the world is more important than anything else in this moment. And this woman understood that. Remember, Mary had hung out with Jesus. She understood that he was going to be crucified and going to the cross. But here's the irony. It really was a gift for the poor, wasn't it? Think about it. She understood Jesus was going to the cross. And look at verse 8. She anoints him for his burial. You see, she saw Jesus in the days before the crucifixion as one who was getting ready to go to the cross. And as he would hang on the cross, he would become poor so that you and I could become rich. You see, Jesus summarizes the beauty of what this woman has done in verse 8 by saying she did what she could. I love that phrase. This woman did what she could. There's a pastor and commentator named Kent Hughes, and he tells the most wonderful story. Uh, He has a younger son when he was really little named Kent, uh, so named after him, and his wife's name is Barbara. Uh, And Barbara had some event that she went to, and she won this really decorated, souped-up, a cardboard recipe box. It had all this paint and glitter and all sorts of stuff on it. Uh, and he said it was very unusual and very unique and it was kind of a conversation piece uh, for people that would come into their house. But one of the things that this recipe box did was forced his wife Barbara to write all of her recipes down on a note card. Uh, they were all stuffed in a drawer, handwritten, and to take all of those, rewrite them, and put them in a recipe box and organize them. And if you've ever done anything like that or seen that done, that takes a lot of time. And her son Kent watched her rewrite every one of the recipes and put them in that box. And as he watched her, all he could think about was this box must mean a whole lot to my mother. 
Barbara's birthday came and her friends surprised her, dropped by the house and took her, took her out for a birthday lunch. She comes back after the lunch and noticed that the box is gone. She's starting to get frustrated because she'd spent a lot of time on this box and putting the recipes. And so she's getting ready to scream out, where is the box? And then she says that Kent walks in and there's water pouring down his back and he's got his hands behind his back. And she knows exactly what has happened. Kent brings the box and it's the cardboard recipe box soaking wet. He had taken water and scrubbed off all of the paint. And he gives it to his mother and says, Mom, I know this box means a lot to you. Happy birthday. And she takes this recipe box and she opens it up. And the inside of the box is lined with aluminum foil. And in it were Kent's three most treasured possessions. A black plastic alligator a nickel, and his own picture. And his mom, his, his mom, Barbara, to this day, that remains one of her most treasured possessions. So much so that she said if the house were to burn down, the two things she would get would be the family photos and the recipe box. Why? Well, because it was a gift that was given for no other reason than pure, innocent love. You see, friends, Jesus has a lot of strange things in His treasury. He has widow's pennies, broken alabaster vases, cups of cold water, ruined recipe boxes, And one of the questions that this passage forces us to ask is, does he have anything of ours? Does he have anything of yours? And another question that needs to be asked as we look at this passage is, what in the world would make her do this? To spend like this on Jesus? Well, two things. She understood who Jesus was. She knew that He was Lord over all creation, and because He was Lord over all creation, He was preeminent over every area of her life. Every detail of her life she had given over to Him. But there's also something else. Not only did she know who Jesus was, she also knew who she was. She knew that she was a sinner desperately in need of God's grace. She knew her need. She knew what Jesus had done for her and was going to do for her on the cross. She knew that Jesus was her only hope. And that is what made Jesus so beautiful to her. So beautiful that she gave everything, literally. Her entire future she gave to Him. And it's why we see verse 9, which seems strange at first. Think about this. Wherever the gospel is preached, this story will be told in memory of her. What does that mean? Well, her story is part of the gospel story because she is a picture 
for us. A demonstration of what happens in a person's life when you experience grace. When you experience the mercy and the love of Jesus. And when you experience the reality of Jesus' love for you, and God's grace makes it all the way to the bottom in your heart, Jesus becomes beautiful to you. Just like this woman. And when He becomes beautiful, then we make Him preeminent over everything in our, in our life. And we don't white-knuckle areas and say, this is mine. But we go to Him and we say, everything I have is yours. And we gladly, just like this woman, take our most precious possessions and we say, here, it's all yours. Is Jesus beautiful to you tonight? Or is Jesus a burden? And if Jesus is a burden to you tonight, could it be that you've forgotten who you are? You've forgotten what Jesus has done for you. You've forgotten that while you were a sinner, Christ died. You've forgotten of how gracious and merciful and loving that Jesus has been with you in the midst of your failure and shortcoming. Number two, the betrayal of Judas. If you kind of get into the scene here, it's pretty intense. I mean, this is a pretty intense interaction. And you can assume by the intensity of what this woman does that she had given no thought to her action. She just burst into this party and broke this vase over Jesus' head and poured this ointment on him. And, it, and she was probably taken back by the unexpected response of the disciples. Look at verses 4 and 5. Some of those who were present were saying indignantly to one another, what a waste. This perfume could have been sold and given to the poor and helped many. And then look at the end of verse 5. Very interesting. They scolded her. And John 12 tells us that Judas, he's the keeper of the money bag. And he was the one that was leading the charge against this woman. And so here sits this woman completely humiliated. And the disciples were probably thinking that Jesus was in agreement with them. Come on, this money could have been used way more effectively. Jesus has got to be with us. But how shocked they must have been when Jesus responds by defending her and saying saying that she has done a beautiful thing. Then look at verse 10. Never noticed this before studying this passage. Verse 10, look at how it starts. The word, then. Then. In other words, what it is saying, it was this action by this woman that actually pushed Judas over the edge. Judas is embarrassed. And he can't stand the fact that Jesus would actually accept the worship of this woman. The one thing that Judas could not tolerate was wholehearted devotion to Jesus for no other reason than a sheer, pure motive of love. You see, Judas is sickened by Jesus' response. 
And so he leaves. And he sells Jesus out for next to nothing. You see, the sin of Judas was selling Jesus. To betray Jesus is actually to follow him only until it costs you. To betray Jesus is to follow him until it costs you. And it's not that Judas didn't have enough faith. He didn't have any faith at all. And we know that because Judas never made any kind of surrender. Judas was a manager of God. Not a servant of God. And the difference between the two is this. When things go well and life is working with you, for you, you're to- and you're getting everything you want, you're totally on board with Jesus. You love Him. You follow Him. You're on, on, on His team. You're ready to go. But at the moment the storms come, and it looks like things are not going to work out for you, or it's going to cost you to obey or it's going to cost you in some way to stay with Jesus, then you drop him like a bad habit. Or you sell him like a stock that stopped performing for you. It's like marriage. Uh, Oftentimes, maybe a person uh, will marry someone, not for who they are, but for their money. And when they get married and they realize somewhere along the way in the marriage that they can't get their hands on the money and so they leave. That's often the way we relate to God, isn't it? We marry God in a sense for His money. We marry God uh, for what He can give us. And at the moment... He doesn't deliver the way we expect Him to or think He should, then like Judas, maybe we walk away from the faith because God isn't useful to us anymore. That's what it looks like to betray Jesus. And here's what's interesting. Hopefully you see where this is going. Look at verse 18 if you have your Bible. We didn't read that far. This absolutely blew my mind the first time I I, I saw this. Verse 18, Jesus says to the disciples, one of you is going to betray me. Verse 19, every one of the disciples looked at one another and asked, is it me? See the implication to that? They all knew that they were capable of betraying Jesus just like Judas was betraying Jesus. And you see, that's the sad and the hard reality, isn't it? Is that betrayal is actually at the heart of all of us. And the difference between Judas and real Christians is not that he fell and we didn't. Because the truth is, the way the Bible talks about our hearts and talks about us, the truth and the reality is you and I are just like him. The only difference between us and Judas is what he did with his failure. Judas had no place to take his failure and that revealed himself by his eventual suicide. Friends, Christians have a place to blow it. A place to take their failure 
That's the good news of the Gospel. That's the beauty of Christianity and the beauty of Jesus. That's why we've been saying this all semester. There's a reason why it's called the good news. Because you can fail and take your failure to Jesus and experience mercy and love and grace in the midst of your failure. About five years ago, we took our family to Disney World. Um, and I don't, I don't know if it's still named this, but it, Hollywood Studios then, and the Tower of Terror. I mean, people, you know what I'm talking about, the Tower of Terror. It's the thing that goes up and drops a bunch, and the bottom falls out of it. And Susie, myself, and my father, we wanted to ride this ride, but knew that we had to find our opportunity apart from uh, our girls. And Kate, at this time, is five years old. And so we all go to the Tower of Terror to get in line, and all of a sudden I hear these little feet behind me, and Kate is wanting to go on this ride. And my uh, mom is watching the other girls. And so we kind of thought, we'll just take her up through the line. She'll hear the screams. Once we get closer, she'll chicken out, and we'll be fine, and one of us will just leave the ride and uh, ride it later. So we keep getting closer and closer. Well, she's not chickening out, okay? And she's actually getting more excited about this. And so we get up, and we are at the point of no return. And Susie and I are thinking, what are we going to do? There, you know, you, there's no way for us to leave at this point. Okay, there was no way out. So she has to ride this ride. And so um, Susie and I are thinking, like, we're, this is going to ruin our trip, scar her for life. And, and we're horrible parents at this point. And so we get in, and you know, you're sitting kind of like in a pew in a, a long seat, and the lap bar comes over you. And so I did the only thing that I knew to do in that moment, and that is wrap my arms around Kate and hold on tight with her. And you know, the scariest part is all the weird music and pitch dark at the beginning. <laughs> and so I can't see her. I don't know what's going on. And we go out, and all of a sudden, the bottom drops out of this thing, and I'm thinking... This is not good. <laughs> she didn't cry. And when the ride was over, after we were kind of getting ourselves together, I looked and she's smiling from ear to ear. And all she could say was, Daddy, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Now, why? Well, because she knew that she was safe. She knew me. She knew that I wouldn't let anything happen to her. She knew that she was sitting in a place where she was loved and protected and taken care of. So she was not scared. Do you feel like a failure? Do you continue to struggle with the same thing over and over and over again? And it leads you to despair and frustration. Can you not seem to get over the hump on your past and you continue to beat yourself up? Well, this woman in Mark 14, this woman that nobody in this room has ever met, is inviting us tonight to come sit next to Jesus, the one who loves us and who will take care of us and who will forgive us and protect us. To come sit next to Jesus and let Jesus wrap His arms around us and forgive us and show us grace. Seniors, 
as you graduate, the thing you need the most is to get near to Jesus. Let Him love you and forgive you. Others that will be returning next year that are going into your summer, thing, the thing that you need the most is the very same thing. The thing that all of us need tonight more than anything else, no matter if you've never been better spiritually or you're really struggling, the thing we need is to get near to Jesus. And my question as I close is, will you come tonight? Will you come to Jesus? Let's pray.